scripture lesson this morning is Matthew 19, 16 through 30, Matthew 19. As you turn to that, uh, let me just read a couple lyrics from the song we just sang, Adore. What have I to offer to heaven's king? I will bring my life, my love, my all. Adore. Come, let, let us adore. In light of the story about the rich young man, Matthew nineteen sixteen through 30. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect... Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last, first. The Word of God for the people of God. Good morning. If you're visiting with us, you might be a little curious as to our ability to select passages about Christmas. As we, uh, we read this passage this morning about the rich young man, we are, during our Advent season, we are examining this idea of God made low. That God entered into a world that was and is profoundly broken. That God didn't enter into a world that looks like what a lot of the Christmas cards that I've received in the mail this week looked like. A perfect little world full of a perfect snowfall and perfect looking animals and a perfect looking Mary who just had a baby several hours before and now she's all put together and there's Joseph and he's sitting there smiling and there's these wise men and and there's these shepherds and everything is 
perfect. But rather, Jesus entered into a world that is profoundly broken. And three weeks ago, Pastor Dan began our series of the word titling God Made Low by looking at and examining the idea of the fact that we are broken within ourselves and that God has called us and empowers us to uh, be off with the old, with our old self and our old nature, and to put on the new, and that is Christ and his likeness, because we within ourselves are broken. Two weeks ago, Pastor Thurman Williams, who's a pastor in St. Louis but grew up here and went to Broadneck High School, was here and he talked about the brokenness that we have between one another, between people groups, between cultures, between races, and that Jesus entered into a world like that. And last week, Pastor Bruce looked at the fact that Jesus entered into a world that is full of sin and full of death and full of suffering. And this week, we're going to think about Jesus entering into a world that is full of idolatry. It's full of idolaters. As we think about idolatry, I I think back to when I was a kid growing up. My parents would uh, enjoy Christmas time because they enjoyed torturing me because I loved Christmas so much. My parents would wrap gifts right after Thanksgiving, and they would put them under the tree, which is awful for a seven, eight, nine-year-old, right? Because what happens every day, you go downstairs, at least in my house, I went downstairs, and there was that tree, and there were gifts. And so my parents figured out that a new way to torture me, and I I use that term lightly, please understand that, it wasn't that bad, But as a nine-year-old, it drove me crazy because they found like the biggest box that they could possibly find, like a wardrobe box that's like this tall. And they, they would wrap it up and put it next to the tree because it's too big to go under the tree. And so when my parents weren't looking or when they went... Uh, out one time we had a babysitter. I remember walking into the room where the present was because I just had to know because I, I loved it so much and I, I picked it up and, whoa, that's heavy. It's made an indention in the carpet and I shook it and it made noise and I put it down being sure to put it right back where the indentions in the carpet were because my parents would kill me if I snooped. And so I ran and got the J.C. Penny catalog. And it's before the Internet. Kids, ask your parents. And, and uh, I went to the J.C. Penny catalog, and I sat down in front of the present with the catalog, and I flipped through it to try to figure out what size weight would match the present that was there. And I sat there and did that for days on end. And then the Christmas finally came and I got to open the present. And if you've been here on Christmas Eve the last couple of years, you know I opened it slowly to save the wrapping paper because on a wardrobe box, that's a lot of paper that you can reuse the next year. And that's just what we do in our family. And so I was able to open the box and I threw out some of the tissue paper that was in the top of the box until I got to the present. Tube socks. Cotton, polyester blend, not even cool socks. 
And I thought, there must be more because tube socks don't weigh but nothing. And so I kept going. And my parents had gone under their deck and got handfuls of gravel and put them in the bottom of the box so that it made a lot of noise when you shook it. And it weighed a lot as a nine-year-old. And I'll tell you that, one, I still remember that. (laughs) And I remember that because my idol was smashed. You see, every Christmas, I make an idol out of what I'm going to get or what I hope I'm going to get. Jesus came into a world of idolatry, of idolaters just like me and probably just like every one of you. We often, when we think of idolatry, we think, well, maybe that's an Old Testament thing. I mean, I've never gone to my kids and taken their jewelry and melted it down into the shape of a small cow and placed it on our kitchen table and said, here you go, family. This is our God. This is the one who brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery and bondage. Let's bow down and worship this. I've never done that. I'm willing to bet that none of you have ever done that. I'm willing to guess that most, probably all of us, we don't have a a statue of of Buddha or anything like that in our house that we we wake up to and we go and, and rub it or look at it and think about higher powers or anything like that. I'm willing to bet that that's not true of us. And so when we come to the idea of idolatry in the world, our, our defenses immediately begin to go up and say, well, I don't, I don't idolize anything. There's nothing that I bow down to. There's nothing that I, I worship. Well, I want us to, I want to challenge us with our definition first of idolatry. Because idolatry isn't simply something, something that we worship a statue or an idol or a poster with someone famous that we have hanging on our walls and we think if only I could be like that person but idolatry is more deceptive than that idolatry is anything that we worship or put in God's place idolatry is anything that we worship besides God, anything that motivates us to do the things that we do rather than being motivated by the worship and the love and the grace of God. And as I, we think about idolatry, I want us to examine this passage because here was a man in, in Matthew 19 that comes to Jesus and Jesus confronts him on his idol and yet he doesn't even really see it. He doesn't even really get it. And the disciples who are with Jesus struggle with understanding Jesus calling this man out for his idolatry. You see, idolatry is deceptively simple, and yet it's powerfully destructive. It's deceptively Simple, oftentimes because it's in the what, what I'm going to call the cultural air that we breathe. 
It's in the, the, the place where we live. It's the accepted norm. It's how we look at the world often is, is full of idolatry that we oftentimes we don't even see. And it's, it's deceptively simple because of that, because we just begin to go along with what the culture is, is doing. If you look back at this passage that Paul read for us this morning in Matthew 19, there's this man that comes to Jesus and he comes up and he says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And so the, this young man asked him, well, which ones? And so Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, sell everything you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And the disciples, if you look in verse 25, the disciples heard Jesus say this, they were greatly astonished and asked who then can be saved what a strange reaction right because in that day and age in that culture in the cultural air that they were breathing wealth was a sign that god loved you so the more wealth that you had the more that god loved you and here jesus says to this man, that's your idol. That's the thing that is, that is motivating you. That's the thing that you are hanging your hat on. That's the thing that you are, are worshiping. And yet it's in the very fabric. That's why the disciples are, are bewildered. They are greatly astonished. They're perplexed because they thought that this man of anyone was loved by God. And yet Jesus says, if you want to have eternal life, get rid of this idol that's in your life because you're worshiping it and not me. I think it's so interesting. There's so much more that we can say that we'll have opportunity to say this morning about this passage. But when Jesus, when this young man asked Jesus that question, what must I do? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Do you see the commandments that he tells him? They're the, the latter half of the Ten Commandments. What theologians will call the, the horizontal commandments, meaning it's, it's dealing with man's relationship with man, with other people. And the, and the guy goes, I've got those. And then Jesus turns to the vertical commandments, meaning our relationship with God in those first commandments. And he says, this is what's holding you back from me. And yet they were all puzzled and bewildered. I wonder if we would be puzzled and bewildered if we began to think of some of the things that might be idols in our own lives and in our own culture. And I want to ask a a diagnostic question. I'm actually going to ask two as we go through our time this morning. The first diagnostic question as we think about what are the idols in my life is this. What would you be sorrowful over if Jesus said, give that up to follow me? What would you be sorrowful over 
Is there something in our culture? Is there something in our life? For some of you, it might be money because our culture in where the area that we live, one of the most affluent places on the planet idolizes money and wealth and possessions. It's just in the air that we breathe. We breathe in the idols of ease and comfort. We breathe in the idols of work, education, politics, sports, people-pleasing, appearances. And you might hear that list and go, wait a second, Pastor, some of those things aren't bad. You're right, they're not. And in fact, I could make a biblical argument from from this where God says that to do some of those things, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. Consider others better than yourselves. And many others. And yet if we put those ahead of worshiping God, if we put those as our motivating forces, as the things that make us do what we do, then they can become idols in our lives. And we often miss it because that's just what our culture is doing. And so we fall prey to the fact that idols can be deceptively simple. Perhaps your idol isn't any of those things. Perhaps your idol is social media. Perhaps it's the fact that when you go to bed at night and you post, tweet, Insta, tweet, whatever, I don't do all that stuff, as you can tell, Um, you put something on there, do you wake up in the middle of the night going, how many likes did I get? How many smiley faces or frowny faces or hearts or whatever did I get? And if God said to you, put the phone away, would you be sorrowful? Because that is what is motivating you. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And even this week and working through this and and asking myself that question, even within me, I go, but I don't want to give that up. I like that. I don't know what it is for you. But maybe there's something in, in your life. There are things in my life that I put ahead of worshiping God. Often things that are good, things that our culture encourages, that are deceptively simple, and yet they are powerfully destructive. They are powerfully destructive because we often, because they're so simple, and because they're part of the cultural air that we breathe, they pull us quietly and slowly away from the worship of God. I think verse 22, in my opinion, which isn't for much, but in, but verse 22 is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. When given the option to run after Jesus or to continue to have his idol, the man chooses his idol. And he walks away sorrowful. And we never hear from him again. 
in the passage. It's powerfully destructive. But we think sometimes, well, I can have just a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of my idol. And God says, no, I call you to to a radical love and a radical obedience and worship of me. And to walk away, to run away, to flee from those things that we worship that motivate us rather than God himself. A second diagnostic question that I want to put before us is this. Are there things in life that make us uneasy and unfulfilled and yet we continue to run after them? What are things that we continue to run after that make us uneasy and unfulfilled? Because that's what idols do to us. Idols were never meant to satisfy us. They can't. Only God can satisfy us fully and completely. I go back to the, the passage and this young man and he comes to Jesus. One, I, it, it blows my mind that he went to Jesus in the first place. Did you ever think about that? Like, why did this young man, a man who in his day and age, he had it all. He had great possessions, which means spiritually people would have seen him and he would have understood himself as being very loved by God. And he believed in his own mind that he kept the commandments. He thought he was good. I mean, he says that after all, look, all these I have kept. But hear what he asks. What do I still lack? I'm missing something. Because that's what idols do. Idols never satisfy us. They always leave us uneasy and they always leave us unfulfilled. If this was me and I asked Jesus that question and how do I have eternal life? One, I'm shocked that he even came to Jesus to ask him that, which is evidence of his uneasiness and his unfulfillment. But when Jesus says, keep these the young man keeps going and ask another question. I would have said, that's awesome. I've got those done. I'm out. See you guys later. And I would have told everybody about it. I have eternal life. I asked this guy. He said, what do I have to do? He told me and I'm doing it. And yet there was just this nagging thing in him. Do you want a little more comfort? A little more ease? If only all the lights were green on my drive to the office. Somehow the State Department of Streetlights knows when I'm coming. And it turns them all red. And I just want one unobstructed commute. Because I want a little more ease. I want a little bigger TV. I think my TV is only 3K. I don't even know if that's a thing. But I saw a commercial that said, this 75-inch thing is 4K. And I think I need one more K. And I don't even know what K is. But it looks awesome. I want my kids to love me just a little bit more. I want you to love me just a little bit more. 
I want one more person to say, good job. I want to lose one more pound. I want to drive the next model year car. You get the point? All these things that are my idols or your idols, they leave us uneasy and unfulfilled because we always want a little bit more. So what is it in your life? What is it in your life that you think, I have to have that? I hope and I pray that that's under the tree this year. And I hope and pray that it's not tube socks like that pastor guy. Because we want just a little bit more. There's a quote at the beginning of your worship guide from a book called Salt Water. It's by a man named Stephen Hoppy or Steve Hoppy. Uh, I, in, in all honesty, I haven't read the book. I've read several reviews of the book. And this quote from the book is taken from one of those reviews. And it really uh, caught my attention this week as I was thinking about this. Here's what it says. In our nagging state of thirst for paradise lost, what do we drink? Salt water. We consume things that look and feel and sound like they can quench our thirst. They promise unmatched pleasure. They promote limitless comfort, joy, strength, peace, and excitement. They vow to remove our fears, tears, worries, guilt, and shame. They pledge to fill the voids in our hearts and soothe our aching souls. They promise paradise. But they can't deliver. We drink them, but our thirst remains unquenched. In fact, we are left thirstier and we experience devastating hangovers, negative spiritual, emotional, physical, and relational consequences as a result. You see, idols are like drinking salt water. Salt water has its purpose, it has its place in the world, but it's not for us to consume. In fact, it makes us thirstier, so much so that you eventually die of dehydration if you keep drinking salt water. And that's what idols do. They look like they will fulfill us, and yet they just make us thirstier and thirstier. And yet that is why Jesus came into a world that was full of idolatry and full of idolaters to make the way back so that the people that God created for the worship and the glory of himself might truly worship him, might come and adore him. You see, Jesus entered a world of idolaters, into a world of idolatry, and he lived a life where he never worshipped anything but except his Father in heaven perfectly. He lived the life that God originally designed us to be able to live. And yet in our fallenness and our sin and our brokenness, we have rebelled and we have worshipped the created things rather than the creator. After all, what is man's chief end from our catechism? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever. That's what you and I were made for. And that's the life that Jesus lived. And yet when he died and was murdered, God took the punishment that was due to you and to me for our idolatry, for our worshiping other things besides God. 
and he took the wrath that was due to us and he put it on Jesus so that we might be given his record and that we might be made right with God the Father in heaven through what Jesus Christ has done. You see, there is to th- this question that this young man asked in Matthew 19. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer to that question is not follow all these rules because we can't. The answer to that question is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That's why Jesus came from heaven and God made him low so that the wrath of the Father might not be borne by you and me, but was placed on his son. And all you have to do is to believe in that. And if you do believe in that and you see the idols in your life, that same is true to repent of our idolatry and to believe more and more in who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And out of that truth, we worship Because God has allowed us to come and to worship Him. And He has made the way possible for us to worship Him through His Son. It's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because we're coming through His work. Not coming through our own performance, but through Him. Because that's what you were made for. When my wife and I... Got our, we got our first job and we, we bought our first house. Uh, we, had, we had dreamed for a long time that when we, we got our house and got settled, we were going to get a dog. And so we got a dog. We got a purebred Labrador retriever. Beautiful dog. Her name was Holly. And our backyard, it was a, a new house. We lived in Georgia at the time. In the backyard, the grass was probably like as wide, I mean, maybe 10 yards wide and maybe like 20 yards long. And we had it fenced in to keep the neighbor kids out, but more to keep the dog in. And so I would take Holly out back and I'm like, it's a Labrador retriever. What do they do? Retrieve. And so I had a stick. Holly, go get the stick. And I had to teach the dog how to get the stick. And I'm like, this is not a good retriever. Like, what is going on with this dog? And after a while, you know, I would go out in the backyard, I would throw the stick, and it would last maybe three or four throws. And then she would just give up. And she would go over to the fence and kind of look through and wonder, like, I wonder what you're keeping me from on the other side. What's over there? And so one day as we're we're going through obedience training with her, uh, I decided to go to a park that was down the street. And went down there, took her a tennis ball instead of the stick, and threw the ball, and that lasted like five, six throws before she gave up. It's like, this is this is silly. She went over to the fence. It's like, what's on the other side of the fence? What are you keeping me from? One spring day, we decided it was a beautiful day, and we said, let's go to the lake. We'll take the dog with us, and we'll go walk by the lake. And so we got... Holly out of the car. I put her leash on because there's leash laws and because I wasn't sure with that whole obedience training how well it was going. And so we're walking down to the lake. We turn a corner and she gets her first glimpse of the lake. And she just stopped. And on the lake, right where her view was, were ducks. 
And she stopped. All the hair on her back stood up. And she turned and looked at me. And she smiled. (laughs) And she looked at her leash and said, please take it off. And so I could see like, I mean, her tail is hitting me. She's just so excited. And I like, all right, we'll give it a shot as long as you come back. And I took the leash off and she just stayed there for a second. And then I looked down at her and I said, go get him, Holly. I've never seen her run that fast. She jumped in the water. For those of you that are curious and worried, the ducks were just fine. (laughs) Refer back to the fact that she's a terrible retriever. (laughs) She swam around for a, a long time. And I sat there on the side of that lake and I watched her chase the ducks, swim in the water. I sat there and thought, that's what she was made for. That's why God made Labrador retrievers. I ask your forgiveness and the crudeness of the illustration. But are you settling for chasing a stick in the backyard? You were made to worship God in heaven. You weren't made to chase idols. And yet we settle for them so often and sometimes we get bigger idols and they always leave us unsatisfied and unfulfilled and god is calling to you and to me come worship me i've made the way come and drink water that will satisfy your soul so that you will never thirst again stop drinking salt water stop throwing a stick in the backyard come Because this is what you were created for. It's why I came to redeem you and to bring you back to myself so that you might worship me in spirit and in truth. I don't know your idols this morning. I know mine. But God came into a world full of people just like me and just like you. And he calls us Maybe he's calling you to give up one of those idols. Maybe he's saying to you, I come first. We have to work. We have to eat. We need food and shelter and all those things. But God comes first. What is it in your life where God needs to be first? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us and creating us to worship you. Father, I pray that we might more and more enter into that truth. Thank you for the fact that we can celebrate Christmas, that we can celebrate a God who is made low so that we might adore you, that we might worship you and glorify your holy name. Father, we would pray that we might see the idols of our hearts, even those that are so simple. We might repent of them and chase after you with all of our being, with all of our hearts, with all of our passions, that it might be directed towards you. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.